just a guy from the crowd who's really happy to be here, but clearly not one of the professionals. Even though this message is going to be a little bit different, it's not going to be like a seasoned pastor giving his 1,000th message, we're still going to open up the same Bible that's been preached from this pulpit for decades. The words we read from it are God's words. They're perfect and they're never wrong. And so it's been my prayer this week that we would allow God's Word to have its full effect on all of us this morning. One of the, few, or one of the first things that I did when I started as the worship director here was I took some time each month to evaluate our songbook. If you want to know the theology of a church, you just read the lyrics of the songs that she sings. After a few months, I had this growing collection of songs marked for further review. These were great songs. They were solid. They were biblical. But we had been doing them the same exact way for a while. And I was was thinking maybe it was time to take a fresh look at some old truths. So I would go online, I would look, I'd see what are the other churches doing? How are they doing these songs? What are different arrangements, different versions of these songs? Did it alphabetically, started with the A's. I worked my way all the way down until I had to stop at the I's where I found something unexpected, shocking, and just a bit confusing. For the song In Christ Alone, I found many arrangements and versions of that song that were 25% shorter than the song, the version that we sing here. They were all missing an entire section, and they were all missing the same section. One quarter of this song was missing as if it never existed. The following is what was missing. Verse 2, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. Very confused, I asked Rich, why would somebody, why would a church, why would a a group of people throw away an entire verse of a song like that? Is there something wrong with that verse? I read it and I say, amen, that sounds like a great verse. What am I missing here? And he said, people are uncomfortable with the idea of the wrath of God. One prominent denomination here in the States went so far as to petition the writers of In Christ Alone to ask, hey, can we do your song but just not sing verse 2? And when the songwriters responded, no, you may not do that, that denomination removed the song from their songbooks and none of their churches will sing it today. All because of that one line that references the wrath of God. This morning, I want to encourage you that we cannot understand the gospel. We cannot understand the cross. 
We cannot even understand Jesus Christ Himself if we remove the topic of God's wrath. It's not a pleasant topic. It's not an easy topic to stomach. It is, however, a necessary topic for the believer in Christ to consider. It is necessary for everyone who calls themselves saved to be biblically informed on how to answer the question, saved from what? On one hand, I understand people being uncomfortable with the wrath of God. I get it. But this morning, I'd like to submit to you, we really aren't uncomfortable enough with the idea of the wrath of God. If you're one for taking notes, you could title today's message, The Cup and the Church. If you'd open your copy of God's Word to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, our focus this morning will be on verses 32 through 42, as I have the privilege of bringing God's Word to us this morning. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he, being Jesus, said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I feel aware of my need, my need for you this morning. God, would you, would you send your Spirit, would you illuminate your Word in our hearts and in our minds today? God, I don't want to have us encounter your Word and then leave here unchanged. Help us, God. Would you soften our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning? In Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, the cup. If you spend any length of time here at Center Church, you'll hear about the cross of Jesus often. 
You'll hear it in our songs. It's in our sermons. Look at our logo. You see it right in the middle. We've adopted the concept of the cross in our everyday language. But if you stop and truly contemplate an actual death by crucifixion, the nailing of a human body to a cross of wood, it becomes difficult to imagine anything else but the pain. The bodily damage that would occur as metal nails are forcibly driven through skin and muscle and bone was extreme. To be crucified would be to have the long remaining final hours of your life focused entirely around the excruciating pain. And yet, in Mark's account of the crucifixion of Christ, in chapter 15, the beginning of verse 24, it simply reads, and they crucified him. Four very direct, very practical words to describe the Savior's death. Four words. It's all you get from Mark. And you could be tempted to ask, really, Mark? It's pretty light on the details. I was under the impression this was the biggest moment in all of history, and you wrote down four words. But I believe that Mark wisely chose to focus the bulk of his words for the context surrounding the crucifixion. When you read the gospel accounts of how Jesus responded to being accused, to being beaten, to being whipped, how he responded when they took a, a crown of thorns and forced it onto his skull, when he was crucified, when the soldier pierces his side with a spear, during all of these horrific things, he never gives a word of protest. We never read of Jesus saying to the Father, allow the hour of whipping to pass. When he was unjustly accused, he was silent. In Mark 15, 4-5, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? You see how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. It makes no sense to Pilate. With all that Jesus had gone through, surely he'd have something to say. Jesus, your own people have so many charges against you. Do you have any words for your defense? But there were no words. There were no objections. No words of protest. Nothing. In the face of such pain and injustice and horror, he's quiet. But in our text, Jesus encounters something in the garden and he has a strong reaction to it. It's very different how he's reacted to all the other things that has happened to him. And now he's anything but quiet. In Mark 14, we see Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And then in verse 35, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. 
And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. As Jesus is hours away from his crucifixion, the thing that occupies his mind, the thing that troubles him, the thing that makes his soul so sorrowful to the point of death, the thing that causes him to literally stagger to his knees and fall to the dirt, the thing that causes him to cry out to his heavenly Father, is there any other way? Is the thought of the cup. The book of Isaiah gives us some context to explain what this cup is and why Jesus reacts so strongly to it. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. Who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. The cup represents God's wrath. Now, a cup doesn't exactly strike fear in the hearts of men. But a cup is meant to be filled with something for the purpose of drinking it. You don't fill up a cup unless there's an expectation that someone's going to drink from it. God chose to take his wrath and place it inside a cup And at some point, someone is going to have to drink it. I don't know what you imagine God's wrath to be like. I don't know if you're picturing an irritable God just kind of sitting around waiting for somebody to do something to make him mad and throw a lightning bolt or two. That's not what we're talking about. God's wrath is described in the Bible as his just response to and his intense hatred of sin. Psalm 5, 4 through 5, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm eleven five, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Proverbs 15, 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. God is explosively furious at sin. God doesn't just consider sin a minor annoyance. It doesn't just rub him the wrong way. God isn't mildly irritated at sin. Sin enrages God. It's so offensive to him. He can't even stand to look at it. It is the worst sight, worst smell, worst sound, and worst taste all wrapped up in one. It's repulsive to God, so much so that sin can't even exist in His presence. My sin, your sin, the familiar sin that we get comfortable and friendly with, God hates it with such a fury, it's it's hard for us to even imagine it. And He takes that wrath and He places it into a cup. In the garden, Jesus contemplates this cup. 
It's full to the brim of stored up, red-hot, brutal, righteous, and concentrated wrath of God. And just the thought of drinking it is such a horrifying thought. Absorbing all of that wrath into his body, it causes Jesus to physically stagger to the ground. To just think about it is a thought too awful. See, God's wrath is not some metaphor. It's not just something that was in Jesus' mind. It is the actual, physical, tangible rage of God against sin that can be tasted and seen and felt most deeply. The realization of the full weight of the wrath of God's anger against sin pushes Jesus to the dirt. It's a thought so awful and terrifying. Jesus pleads three times with his Father to remove this cup from him. Jesus, who up to this point had given no words of protest, he now protests. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who had enjoyed up to this point perfect and complete union perfect and complete communication with God the Father, now cries out, Father, is there any other way? Is there a plan B? Take this cup away from me. And then there's silence in response. For the first time ever, God the Father, He doesn't answer His Son. Jesus comes back two more times saying the same words. Father, all things are possible with you. Remove this cup from me. And each time there is silence. There's no analogy. There's no word picture. There's no collection of words in any language that can adequately convey the abject terror of coming face to face with God's wrath. It's not uncomfortable. It's deeply horrifying to your core. Jesus does so in the garden and the experience causes him to sweat great drops of blood as he pleads with his Father to get that cup as far away from him as possible. But there's no answer. There's no alternative He doesn't even find any comfort in his friends. They've all fallen asleep, and he is alone. And what does he say? Yet not what I will, but what you will. And so Jesus, hearing no reply from his Father, is led to the cross, and he begins to drink. He begins to drink the cup of God's wrath until it is dry. And the thunderous roar of God's intense hatred 
for sin, it swells and it crashes violently onto Christ. God the Father unleashes a torrent of His stored up wrath on His own beloved Son because now He can't stand the sight of Him. Because now it's as if Jesus was the one who was a liar and a cheat and a thief. It was as if Jesus had committed adultery, looked at porn, and slept around. It was God's intense hatred of sin burning against Christ as if He was the one who abused children and raped women and committed war crimes. Jesus never did any of those things. He was perfect. Yet here... God crushes him as if he did all of them. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And then after Jesus finished drinking the cup of God's wrath, he cries out, It is finished. The wrath of God is now satisfied. There is now not a single drop of wrath in that cup. And then he dies. Can you see the display of God's peculiar love in this moment? Because that cup was my cup. It was your cup. In it was the particular and unique stored up wrath of God for all of my sin. It was the cup with my name on it. It was filled with the consequences of my sinful actions and my sinful thoughts. There is only one person who should have to drink the contents of that cup. There's only one name on the side of that cup. There's only one person who rightly deserves to die for my sins and experience the wrath of God in full. It was me. Me alone. That would have been justice. That would have been fair. That would have been right. I should have gotten what I deserved. I deserve every single drop of wrath in that cup. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The Savior called out my name and said, follow me. Not only will I put my name on your cup, I'll put your name on my perfect life. Let's trade. Why? Why would Jesus make such an offer? 
because of his steadfast love for his bride. Hosea 2, 19 through 20, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Point number two, the church. Follow me here. Jesus left the glory of heaven and perfect union with God the Father to put on flesh. He suffers the indignity of being accused and beaten and whipped by the very men he crafted in his image. The people who relied on him every second of every day to keep their hearts beating drove nails into his body with the intent of stopping his. He experiences the most horrific thing that anyone could ever go through. The full wrath of God crushing him when he didn't deserve it. Jesus, why did you choose this? And I will betroth you to me forever. Lord, I find myself easily turning to so many things. I wander away from you. I try to find satisfaction in money and relationships and a whole host of other things. Why would you stand in my place and drink this cup, Jesus? Why? I deserved it, not you. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Jesus, I am not faithful. On my own, I can't love you back the same way that you love me. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Can you see just how much Jesus loves his church? To Christ, the church is his bride waiting for her wedding day. And despite all of the flaws and problems that are very easy to spot when you look at a church, Jesus looks and he sees his intended. And he loves her with a kind of steadfast, forever love. The kind of love that promises to pursue us even when we go after other gods, other things to satisfy us. The kind of steadfast love that can overcome even spiritual adultery. That's what we've seen in our series in Hosea. When we wander from God to other things, God describes it in the same way as you cheating on your husband or wife. This is why it is critical that we don't ever shy away from talking about the wrath of God. God promised that he betrothed us to him, and it's through seeing the incredible cost of keeping that promise that we could ever understand just how much God loves his church. God the Father gave up his only son and crushed him under his righteous wrath 
This is how we know love. What else is there? Right? All of a sudden, the God of an extra 10 grand in your bank account, the God of losing some weight, the God of gaining some more respect, that all seems pretty pathetic when stacked up against what we've received from God in Jesus. This incredible, steadfast love. There's no greater gift. There's nothing left in all of heaven and all of earth to give you. God gave you himself. There's nothing more valuable. There's no stronger piece of evidence to find that could somehow prove God's love for you more. This was it. When we were so unbelievably lost, it was through the love of God on full display at Calvary as he grinds down his son with his wrath that whoever puts their trust in Christ, they shall be saved from it. Church, we're saved by God. We're saved from God. And we're saved for God. Center Church and all believers who are listening, you are intended for God. I need to hear that directed to myself. Zach, you are betrothed to Christ. Start acting like it. Live as if this is true. See what it cost Jesus to rescue you and know his great love for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I confess, I don't, I don't always live my life as if I was betrothed to you. I am prone to wander. I am inclined to go after so many other things. But Jesus, your steadfast love is like nothing we've ever encountered. Your pursuit of us when we stray and go after other things is sobering, and sometimes it's embarrassing. How could we go after other things in light of what you did for us at Calvary? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our place, for drinking that cup in our place so that we would never know, we would never experience God's wrath. Help us, Jesus. We're weak. But in our weakness, you are strong. We've encountered your word this morning, and may we leave this place changed because of it. It's in your name we give thanks and pray. Amen.